Great, thank you, Kate. Let's pray, shall we, as we uh, stand and we receive these gifts and we prepare to uh, listen to God's word. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are such a generous God. Uh, You don't treat us as we deserve. You lavish your gifts upon us. And we pray that you would use uh, this money and the money that's gone directly through bank accounts uh, so that others might see how good you are and come and put their trust in you. And we pray that as we uh, read your words and we listen to it proclaimed, uh, that we would see that again. Our hearts would be thrilled and we would long to tell them too. Amen. Do please take a seat. Great. And if you could open your Bibles to the uh, first passage that we had read earlier, that would be uh, really helpful uh, to me. Uh, It's uh, Genesis chapter 6 and uh, it's page 8 in the... uh, the Bible's in the piece. Uh, I'm not really a big fan of the cinema. Uh, no particular reason why. I don't have a thing that's against uh, uh, films at all. Uh, so I don't really take much notice of what's uh, been released. Uh, but earlier in the week, I was uh, just about to go to bed, and my eye caught uh, a sort of news feature on a programme um, about the, the new film by Danny Boyle about Steve Jobs. And it uh, looked quite interesting, so I kept watching uh, and the thing that kind of caught my interest, as it were, was the way that the, uh, the, the interviewer, I think they were interviewing uh, somebody who had something to do with the, the film, um, was picking out how, on one level, Steve Jobs was always seen as this great visionary who led uh, the world, I guess, into a new period of, of progress. Uh, most of us, in some way, even if we don't own Apple products, will have been impacted by, uh, by technological advances that he uh, developed. And yet at the same time, he was somebody who had a dark side. His private life wasn't perhaps what he would have wanted it to be. Uh, he was quite skilled at hiding that from the general public. Uh, he had a side to him that many people didn't know. And I, and I, I, I haven't seen the film, I perhaps I probably never will. But uh, as far as I can tell, the film is exploring some of that, uh, those contradictions, as it were. And in many ways, I think Steve Jobs is, is a good example of what humanity is often like. Uh, on one level, there's this sort of sense of progress, uh, of going forward, and yet at the same time, it can be very, very different. I think human beings have always longed to progress. Uh, back in the 70s, there was a best-selling book called The Ascent of Man, and it, and it captured that kind of idea The sense that human history is sort of on an upward trajectory. Uh, Things can only get better in the name of that terrible um, pop song that's probably been ruined forever, hasn't it, by Tony Blair, I suspect. Uh, It's this idea that somehow humanity is just kind of going to keep on going. It's going to go up and up. And yet, experience tells us that it just isn't like that, is it? Uh, The 20th century saw more wars than any other in history. Uh, The paradox is that some of the greatest technological um, advances of the last century were made by uh, evil totalitarian regimes for the purposes of killing other human beings. Uh, There have been advances in living standards and in health. Of course there are, we can't deny it. But can we say that human beings have got any better? I don't know if we can. Uh, Winston Churchill, I think, captured it really well. This was a a quote from a speech that he gave just after the Second World War to the House of Commons, and he said these words. 
Man, in this moment of history, has emerged in greater supremacy over the forces of nature than has ever been dreamt of before. He has it in his power to solve quite easily the problem of his existence. He's conquered wild beasts and even insects and microbes. There lies before him a golden age of peace and progress. He only has to conquer his last and worst enemy, himself. I think he caught something, didn't he, of that great dilemma that humanity finds itself in. And it's a dilemma that we see in the reading that we've, uh, we had earlier. On the surface, things are going well for the human race. They're progressing. They're, they're making technological advances. Uh, they're beginning to increase in number on the earth. They're, they're growing in strength and number. And yet the rebellion that we've seen already in Genesis, uh, that, that sense of uh, being set against God and his ways, uh, hasn't gone away. On one level they've progressed, but actually on another level, if anything, things have got uh, worse. The big problem remains, just as Churchill recognised, ourselves, human beings. And our passage both shows us the extent of the problem but also begins to hint that God has an answer to it as well. So let's look at the, uh, the first reading. Uh, and I think we can sum that up by saying that God sees human corruption. God sees human corruption. Uh, back in chapter 1, God uh, commanded human beings to be fruitful and to multiply. Uh, and as we've just noted, it's clear that this command is being obeyed. That's happening there. The children are being born Uh, They're spreading out across the earth. And yet in the midst of this blessing, there is rebellion. There's sin. It's rebellion against God and his instructions. Verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Uh, It's not entirely sure exactly what the writer means in, uh, in that verse. Um, there are lots of different theories on it. Uh, most scholars tend to think that it means that angels were marrying human beings. Uh, when the phrase, the sons of God, is used uh, throughout the Bible, it, it usually refers to angels. So it's quite likely it refers to some kind of angelic beings coming down and um, ha- yeah, um, forming relationships uh, with, uh, with humans. Uh, Whatever the exact details, it it doesn't really matter, because the main thrust, I think, is is clear. Human beings have rejected God's pattern for relationships. Uh, Back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, uh, we can see how God created men and women distinctively uh, from one another. And yet, at the same time, they're called to live in union with one another. Uh, It's a union in a number of ways. Uh, It's a union of being, uh, because God tells us that both the sexes are created equal in his sight, they're in God's image, and yet at the same time they need the other. Uh, They're created for one another. It's that that curious sense in which they're distinct and yet they're created uh, for one another. Uh, But it's also a union of flesh as well, uh, because when a man and a woman leave their parents to become husbands, and wife. Uh, the Bible tells us that they become one flesh. 
uh, they are, literally are, are joined together, of course, in, in physical intercourse. But it's more than that. It's not just physical. Uh, it, it's emotional. It's spiritual. It's mental. Uh, they are bound together in a complete and indissoluble commitment that lasts uh, for, uh, for their lives. Uh, that's the pattern for relationships that God set out. And that's the pattern that the daughters of men have rejected here. Well, back in the Garden of Eden, when um, Adam and Eve uh, rejected God's commands, it, it had consequences. They were cast out of Eden, and uh, they, were, they, they entered the realm of death. And we shouldn't be surprised that it has consequences when we see it happening here as well. Uh, there's some terrible things that uh, God says here, verse, um, verses 5 uh, through to 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face uh, of the earth. Uh, we're told that God uh, regretted or was, was grieved that he made man on the earth. Literally, the Hebrew means he repented. He had a change of mind, basically. Uh, I don't think we should think that God was then saying that creation had been a big mistake. I don't think it's quite going that far. But it is telling us that human sin, uh, human's rejection of God and his ways, grieves God deeply. Uh, God is holy. He has an unrelenting hostility to sin. And because he's perfectly holy and he's perfectly just, he can't just let it go. He has to punish it uh, because uh, that is right and fair. And that's what God does here. He does it with a heavy heart, yes, of course. He doesn't uh, want to do that, but he has to. He declares, doesn't he, that he will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that he had created. He promised Adam and Eve that when they sinned, that would have consequences. And he's true to his word here. We might read, we might wish, I guess, as we uh, read this chapter, that, that in some way we can kind of distance ourselves from it. Uh, perhaps we look at it and we think, well, it was a long time ago. Uh, I've never had sex with an angel. I'm not likely to. Uh, this doesn't really apply to me. This is all a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, it is weird, basically. And yet, at the same time, we can't distance ourselves from it. Uh, because who among us can honestly say that we have upheld God's pattern and standards for human relationships absolutely perfectly? Uh, whether we're married or have been married or uh, uh, wish to be married or whether we just fancy wanting to remain single. Well, whoever we are, nobody can say that they have perfectly upheld God's expectations for human relationships. Uh, all of us are essentially in the same boat as those daughters of men. Uh, the uh, writer Somerset Maugham said this, uh, If I wrote down every thought that I'd ever thought and every deed that I'd ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. It's big words, isn't it? Uh, and when we compare ourselves with God's standards, as revealed in the life of the Lord Jesus and as revealed in God's word, uh, I guess we find ourselves compelled to echo those words of Somerset Maugham. We look like monsters of depravity. Uh, each of us has rejected God's ways. 
uh, we've turned against him, just as the daughters of God, uh, of uh, men had here. And each of us is just as deserving of his wrath and punishment as they were. God isn't blind. He doesn't turn a blind eye to what we get up to. He sees the, uh, the, the thoughts and the inclinations of our hearts and our deeds. The, the thoughts, the inclinations, the deeds that we would rather that nobody else knew about. And perhaps they don't know. Perhaps we think we're quite good at keeping a lid on it. And yet God sees. Uh, he knows. He sees the corruption of the human heart. And he passes his judgment. Well, if that's the, the bad news, the good news is found in the uh, second reading that we had. Uh, which shows us that God doesn't just see corruption, but he starts his covenant. He starts his covenant. Look with me, uh, if you will, at uh, chapter 9, and we're going to read from from, uh, verse 1. I think this story of the the flood and God's provision of salvation for Noah and his family and the ark is is probably the most well-known in the Bible. I don't think you'd get a story that's better known uh, than this one. We don't really have time, sadly, to look at it in detail uh, this evening, so do go away and, and, and look at that for yourself. Uh, all I'm going to do is just, just note the, the, the kind of the salient points. Uh, we're told that God instructs Noah, who we're told is a, a righteous uh, man who walked with God, uh, to build an ark, to board it with his family, and to take two of every living thing. Uh, and just as God promised, uh, the earth is, is, is flooded. But Noah and the rest of the ark's passengers uh, are saved. Uh, and the reading in chapter 9 picks up again the story after the waters have subsided, uh, and it describes what, uh, what God uh, does next. Uh, and you just have to glance through this uh, second reading to, to see that there's one big dominant theme. Uh, there's a word that keeps cropping up um, again and again here. Uh, it is that word uh, covenant we can see covenants. It comes up again and again throughout these verses. Uh, God establishes his covenant with Noah and his descendants. Uh, covenant is a, is a funny word, but it's, it's a Bible word that, that, that is actually quite important. It, it comes up again and again throughout the Bible, and it's probably worth that we spend some time thinking a bit this evening about what it means. Uh, literally, it, it means a coming together. So we get our English word covenants from the Latin word, which is convenere, which literally means to come together. It's the sense of people uh, you know, coming together in a, in a kind of relationship. Uh, that, that's a, a, a good enough definition, but, but I think we can take it a bit, a bit further. Uh, a more complete definition uh, might be to say this, that uh, a covenant in the Bible is a solemn agreement uh, that binds parties to each other in a permanent relationship with promises and obligations on each side. It's a solemn agreement that binds parties together in a permanent relationship and there are promises and obligations on each side. Uh, the most obvious example, I suppose, would be marriage. So two people bound together, permanent relationship, we trust, uh, and there are promises, there are obligations for each party to, to keep. In that. That's a covenant relationship. But throughout the Bible, God is seen to be a God who makes covenants with his people, with us. Uh, the very first one was back in the Garden of Eden, uh, where he made a covenant, uh, which we often call the covenant of works or the covenant of creation uh, with Adam and Eve. 
Uh, God promised them eternal life uh, so long as they perfectly obeyed him. Of course, we know the outcome of that. It didn't happen like that. Uh, But God didn't give up. Uh, The Bible tells us that he then established a new covenant, which was uh, we often call the covenant of grace, uh, that he would put right what uh, sin has destroyed. And that covenant of grace is gradually revealed as the Bible goes on through the Old Testament. You get sort of installments at different stages of the Bible. And this covenant that God makes with Noah is a bit like the next installment in the covenant of grace. It's God revealing a little bit more every time of what this looks like. Let's have a little look at it more closely, shall we? There's our water gone somewhere down here, isn't it? There we go. Um, covenants in the Bible have, have, have various things that, that, that kind of they share, really. Uh, and this covenant is, is no different. Uh, this covenant promise, we can see, is given at God's initiative. Uh, so again and again through chapter 9, you can just see how it's, it's always uh, God saying, I now establish my covenant with you. I establish my covenant with you. This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you. Uh, You can't come away from reading this without realising that it's God stretching out his hand to human beings. It's not the other way around. It's not human beings going in search of God. It's God going in search of human beings. Uh, It's a a covenant promise that's given in the context of human sin. See that in our first reading, can't we? It, It was given in the context of human beings having flatly refused to worship God and to turn their back on him. Uh, completely. Uh, Again and again we see in the Bible God is always the giver and man is the receiver. Uh, And we can see his goodness shining out even more against the backdrop of of sin. Those are the first two things. Uh, Covenants are always given at God's initiative and they're always given in the context of human sin. And we can see that here. Uh, But the second thing is that because covenants in the Bible are really serious business... They're almost always accompanied by a sacrifice and a shedding of blood. And this covenant with Noah is, again, no no different to that. We didn't read this bit, but if you look back at verse 20 of chapter 8, you can see what Noah does as soon as he comes out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, we're told, and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Uh, What was the result of that? The writer tells us. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Uh, Those sacrifices are are a a kind of a tangible sign of Noah's uh, devotion to God. We're told that he was a blameless man who walked with God. These are are a, a kind of practical sign of that. But they're more than that. Uh, they are a, a sacrifice that, in some sense, makes peace with God for human sin. Uh, it's that idea, isn't there, that the Lord smelled them and it pleased him. And he said that he would not uh, curse the ground on account of human sin. Uh, the, uh, we've had those sacrifices. Uh, and then alongside that, there's, a, there's a kind of another thing that happens here, which again uh, tends to happen with covenants. Uh, there is a physical sign that God gives his people in order for them to remember what he has given them. And we have that here again. We didn't quite read this bit, but it's uh, from verse 12. 
Uh, This is the sign, God says, of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. What's the sign? I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Uh, When we see a rainbow, we can look at that and we can be reminded of God's covenant promise. It's very appropriate, isn't it? A rainbow's come uh, kind of at the conclusion of of a storm. And I'm sure that there's a significance in that. That as we look out and a storm is concluded, uh, we can be reminded that the storm of God's wrath uh, has been, uh, has been uh, is, is over in that sense for those who trust him. We could remember his promises not to send a flood again. Well, some of you might not be old, quite old enough to really remember this, but uh, can you remember back to the days when we had film cameras? Everyone uh, always says digital now, don't they? Uh, but uh, if you uh, can remember it, film cameras, uh, you, what you'd do is when you'd finish the reel of film, you'd, you'd take it to the chemists, like Boots or something like that, and they would, um, they, they would develop it. Uh, and when you got, got home, you'd get given... The film strip would consist, firstly, of a, of a, a series of negatives, which would be kind of like mini-pictures of the pictures uh, that you'd taken. Well, sounds really primitive now, doesn't it? It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> and they would be the kind of the master image from which uh, the rest of the pictures would be uh, developed. So if you wanted to get one in particular and you sort of wanted to blow it up and put it up on your wall, you'd select the negative and then the chemist would do his fancy stuff and you'd pick up the, uh, the, the kind of the, the, the exploded version of it. And in many ways, the, the covenants in the Old Testament are a little bit like those negatives with, with film cameras. Uh, they, they, they're a picture, that, in a sense, that anticipates the full technicolour, glorious picture of the covenant that the Lord Jesus would establish uh, by his death on the cross. Uh, they have lots of similarities. Think about it. Uh, just as with the covenant with Noah in Genesis... Uh, Jesus came at God's initiative. He came because God decided that that was the time, and that was what he wanted. Uh, Paul says in Galatians, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. It's the same thing. It happens at God's uh, initiative, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus came in the midst of sin, just as God's uh, covenant with Noah was given. Uh, Why? Because uh, the Apostle John tells in the first chapter, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own people, and yet they didn't see him because they were blinded uh, by their sinfulness. Uh, There was sacrifice, of course, with the new covenant. Uh, Jesus secured the new covenant by sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Of course, it wasn't the blood of animals, just as it was uh, with Noah, but it was his own blood which secured an eternal redemption. And that very night before he died, in the upper room with his friends gathered around him, uh, he gave his people a physical sign to remember the covenant uh, and his promises. It's the bread and wine, isn't it, of the Lord's Supper uh, that recall his broken body, his spilt blood, that won the forgiveness for us. Uh, That covenant promise that God made with Noah all those uh, centuries ago is fulfilled in the work of the Lord Jesus, who is the one who initiates a new covenant, or or better, really a renewed covenant, because they're not totally different. Uh, It really is the renewed covenant, uh, which is a new covenant uh, in his blood. 
in old days on, in the uh, city of London when people were making uh, financial deals, they would uh, secure deals by shaking hands and saying, my word is my bond. It's the motto of the stock exchange. I think it still is, as far as I, I know. Uh, uh, the sign of the handshake and the fact that the person uh, who was making it was somebody who was also a member of the stock exchange uh, meant that you could trust in their promise. If they did that, and they gave you a sign, and they said those words, you could trust that they would uh, hold true to their promises. Uh, if only it were true uh, today, I guess. Clearly things have uh, changed quite a bit. I can't imagine that many uh, big banks do deals quite in that same way, uh, I guess. Uh, but unlike bankers, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is his bond. Uh, It always has been. Uh, The covenant promise that God made all those years ago with Noah is the promise that Jesus accomplished, that we remember when we gather together to share in the Lord's Supper, when we see those physical signs and we drink the wine and we eat bread together. Uh, It's a reminder that God's promises still stand and they stand for all time. Uh, God welcomes us back even though, as he says, the inclinations of our heart are evil all the time. He welcomes us back, not because we deserve it, not because we can do anything to earn it, but because he loves us. And in his goodness, he's made a way for that to be possible. Uh, We can be so thankful, can't we, this evening? Uh, We're much worse than we could ever dare believe, but we're much more loved than we could ever dare believe as well. Uh, We can know peace with God, through his covenant of grace in Jesus. He established his covenant with Noah, and that covenant stands in fullness uh, this evening and for all time. Winston Churchill said, we've only got ourselves left to conquer. And yet the message of the flood and our experience in life tells us that it isn't quite that easy unless God steps in. Uh, His covenant promise that he made with Noah that's fulfilled in Jesus tells us that he's done that. He has stepped in. He's broken the cycle. And he invites us to share in it this evening, to enjoy being in his family, to enjoy the freedom that he offers. Let's enjoy it, shall we? And let's pray. Oh God, how we praise you so much that uh, though humanity is sinful, just as we were back in... Uh, the days of the sons of men and the, daughter, uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men, the days of Noah, we're still sinful today, and yet you have never given up on us. Thank you so much for your promise that you made to Noah, and thank you that it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can be part of it uh, when we accept Jesus for ourselves. As we pray that you would encourage us uh, with that great uh, covenant promise, that when we uh, see the bread and the wine, Uh, we would be prompted to think of that and to feed on you in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen.